0: Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors.
1: My name is Colby Steinasell, and today we're speaking with Steve Smith, Managing Director of GI Partners and former Chief Executive Officer at Equinix as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries series. So with that, Steve, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me, Colby. I want to start actually talking about your your U.S. Army career. So you were in the U.S. Army for eight years, having graduated from West Point. Had you always wanted to go to West Point and to join the Army? No, not until... I have no military in my background,
0: Colby. And at the time when I was a senior in high school, which was a long time ago, which was in the mid-70s, I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, be recruited to play football in college at a mostly Northeast school, uh, Maryland, Syracuse, a couple in the ACC and West Point. So I actually visited all of them and I got, so I got recruited there to go play uh, quarterback at West Point Point. and when I visited, I had no idea what the Military Academy was about. So as you can imagine, for those of you who have been there, it was a very impressive facility. I love the coaches. I love the idea of getting a great education I probably underestimated the fact that you go there for four years and then you have to serve for five. So, you know, as an 18 year old, you're making a nine year commitment in your life. But I made the decision and I did it. And um, it was a wonderful experience for four years. It was hard. I was in the, actually in the last all male class. So my sophomore year is when females were admitted, which I was thrilled with just to, for the diversity. Uh, but it was tough for them. And it, 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 so it was an interesting time for me to go through. And then you do have to serve for five years. As most people know, out of all the academies, the Air Force Academy, the Navy Academy. I ended up staying in seven actually because I became a general's aide at some point when I was a captain and I was in Hawaii, not a bad place to be serving. And so I, I stayed in for a while and it was a good experience when I look back, I do it again.
1: So I didn't know you were a quarterback. For West Point, did you did you did you did you play all four years? How, what did
0: what was that career like? I did, I did. I uh, I um, first two years I rode the bench. I was a backup, and then the last two years I decided that I wanted to play. So there was a there was a quarterback that was ahead of me that was 6'6", 230. He was you know all east. I was never going to play. Ahead of him.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so I I switched and played defensive back. In my last two years, I played free safety, and played. So yes, I played all four years, and it was a great experience. We played big you know, big teams, we played Notre Dame and Pittsburgh and Penn State. And you know, I played against some of the, some greats that are now retired and out of the sport, but it was, it was when I look back, it was a, a terrific experience.
1: Oh, that's awesome, I didn't know that. I think the general perception of a military man or woman is someone who's well organized, punctual, disciplined. I guess, what other adjectives am I missing and, and do all these characteristics apply to you?
0: Those are, all, those are all good characteristics that I think my friends and colleagues would say uh, exist in, in my life. I think, if I, I think if you visited me, me in my home, Kobe, you'd see that my closet is extremely organized. My desk is extremely organized and my house is extre- our house is extremely organized. So yeah, punctual discipline and organized is, are good descriptors. I would say during the early days of my military experience, there were some things that were different, you know, because you're training to go to war. And, you know, it, when I graduated in 79, so I was in for seven years, the early 80s, there were no wars. So we were training all the time and there was things like we had a common purpose so i learned all about the importance of teams and shared consciousness and trust and building team bond because you were training to go take care of who was on the left and right of you there, there was a concept that i also walked away from the military that i would that i kind of referred to as service to others you you there was a cause or purpose that you were you were kind of working towards and in that and in that environment you were willing to sacrifice or suffer your life for to defend your country so it kind of put a deep bond into, you know, your mindset. Communal success was, was big. You know, you had to do it as teams and together. So I really learned the art of that early on. And there were many other things that transitioned into the, into the business world when I, when I left um, that, that have carried with me today.
1: That's a really good point. Team and trust. Not what I had on the, the, the list of, of things that came to my mind when I was putting all this stuff together, but those are great points. And those, you know, I would think would be skills that serve you well, you know, really throughout your career.
0: Yeah, it, you know, as it evolved into the business world, you know, there were things like in the military, bravado was a big thing. Like right? if you're a captain or a major, a general, you could you could boss people around. And, and the listeners that that have been in the military know that. And when you transition into the business world, it's not about bravado. It's about bringing people along to your point of view. And so. You know, I learned, it took me a while, but I learned that it's, it's not about because you're the CEO or the president of this division or the vice president of this. You have to bring people along to your point of view uh, and you just can't push them into that. And so, you know, I think people and, and high performance kind of transition with me out of the military for sure. Culture became a big topic, Colvin. you and I talked about this for many years. You know, my experiences in my companies that I've been in, including Equinix, culture became a differentiator. Culture was a big, big factor in the success of that company, still is today. You know, I learned about the, the, the idea of being humble. Um, there are a lot of acronyms in the military. As you, as you know, there are a lot of acronyms in, in the tech world. There's a couple that have lived with me forever. I have the thing I call the three L's, listen, learn, and then lead. And, and I think most people that are listening today that have gone into new jobs know that you can't come in because you came from Cisco or HP or some big company. And do it that way. You have to listen and learn to business and then you can start leading as a leader. I had a thing that I think still exists with me today and people that know me, I, I used to call, I still call it the five Ps. Prior planning prevents poor performance. I definitely came out of the military. And so, you know, there's cute things like that, that I've kind of carried with myself. I think patience and respect for people have been part of my DNA from a long time, for a very long time. And acting from understanding. I think the world the workforce has changed today tremendously. And you like I said, you have to you have to act from understanding what's going on, not from because you're the boss or you're the you're the head of this or the head of that. So I think all that stuff matters. But probably the biggest thing that kind of lived with me for a long time is learning how to be humble. It's not about me, it's about we. It's all about it's all about the team and it's it's about the success of the organization.
1: And you think those are like your 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 hidden skills? I mean when I've gotten the question in, in interviews, um, you know, what what skills have allowed you to be successful in, in, in one's career? When I'm asked that question specifically. I always talk about my work ethic. I have a good work yeah. ethic. It's, it's your willingness to just listen and, and kind of just be more empathetic. Is, is, is that your... Yeah, I
0: think I, you know, as... T- yeah, I, I, over time, I certainly got more mature about that. And, and you know, you when you've had success like you have in your career, and I'm sure many of the listeners have had you know, you, you get experienced. And so, you know, listening and learning and, and, you know, acting from understanding is is very important because you're, you know, the more, the bigger the organization, the more people you're leading, the, you you have to, you have to have the voice of the people on the front lines. I used to spend a lot of time. I used to call them lunch and learns. I used to do this at all the companies I've been in where I would bring a cross section of people in about two times a month and it was a super big cross section of people and just sit and talk about what's on their minds. And if they wanted to keep it in the room and not have me go act on it, I would honor that. If they wanted, if it was something that was bugging them that was going on in the company and they wanted me to go fix it, I would go fix it with their permission. So yeah, I think that's important today to be super connected to the front lines of, because the because the, the workforce is changing so rapidly.
1: Yeah, and it'll be really interesting to see how how people are able to manage that in a, in a COVID-19 world. but. Just moving on, um, you know, when I look back on my career, especially early on, there, there are a few people that were really influential in helping me to get where I am. Um, anybody on your list that, that comes to mind that you could talk to us about?
0: Yeah, I'm sure everybody can, could think back about that. And I've been doing this now for 32, 33 years, I think, in the business world. You know, when I first left the military, I got recruited by another military organization called EDS, Electronic Hit Systems, which was the big outsourcing guerrilla. You remember them. You remember them well. They were around for a very long time, then ultimately got acquired by HP. But there was the vice chairman, when I first got there, there was a vice chairman named Gary Fernandez, who was one of the original Perot, Ross Perot uh, lieutenants. There was like seven or eight of them. And, you know, this was a great company, headquartered in Dallas, kind of took stormed the world with this concept of outsourcing, where we would go into a company and take over all their processing and provide a service back to them. And they were the leader in the industry, and they started this in the early 60s. He taught me two or three things that I have certainly lived with in my life. One was know a little bit about a lot of things. Be very broad and you don't need to be deep in any one thing unless you want to be an expert. But you should know a little bit about wine. You should know a little bit about Europe. You should know a little bit about Asia. You should know a little bit about this, a little bit about that. And if you can, you can have, you can be conversational and be a storyteller. That became a powerful thing that I took from him that I, I enact today. He, he also taught me to you know, always do the right thing versus doing things right, because some process or some manual said, you got to do it this way. Do the right thing based on your intuition you know, at the time. So um, I developed a lot of good habits at EDS because it was very disciplined. You know, funny story, when I first got there in 80, 87, 88, you had to wear suits. Uh, those are the days it was like IBM. And if you left your cube or your office and went down to eat lunch or go anywhere, you had, to put your, you had to put your jacket on. You could not walk around the EDS facility without full suit, with your jacket on, tie, everything. And, and you actually couldn't wear slip-on shoes in those days. You had to wear tie shoes. So this was, this was shocking. This was, yeah, and then it, you know, it shifted as the dress code shifted and everything. But it was pretty funny. I also had a great experience with, and uh, in, in, bless his heart, he passed away a year ago, Mark Hurd. So when I first, when I left EDS and went to HP, I had an interim year with Lucent, which was an interesting year, but I went into HP, Carly Fiorina was the CEO, and I worked for her for about six months before she left, and then they brought Mark Hurd in, and at the time, people were really shocked, because Mark came from NCR, he was the CEO and chairman of NCR, so nobody really knew him, and HP was a $110 billion company, big, prominent tech company. He was an interesting guy, very hard-nosed guy. I learned a ton from him in the couple years I was there before I left to go to Equinix. Um, he had a lot of funny sayings. You know, one, one I remember and I use today to this date is interrogate the data until it confesses. So he was a big data guy, right? Because the NCR had, had uh, you know, they were deep into the data world. Um, he taught me how to think like a customer. He said, you always have to think about, about what the customer wants. So it wasn't just about us and our stuff, it was about the customer. He was super action and emergency focused. It was all about getting stuff done. Mark was very, very good with customers. And as you know, he left HP and went to Oracle and then unfortunately passed away about a year ago, uh, come October, yeah. super, super, uh, probably learned more from him as a CEO than anybody I've worked with. And then when I got to Equinix, we, we, we worked with a lot of great people. We brought some outsiders in during the decade plus that I was there. We actually worked with Jim Collins for a while. the author of Good to Great and Built to Last. We spent, I took the whole leadership team to Boulder for about a week, and he unpacked us and repacked us at a very critical juncture in our history that helped us make some big decisions, which was quite interesting. He was very disciplined. Remember, he wrote all these books about the best companies in the world. So he taught us about being disciplined people and disciplined thought and disciplined action. He taught us how to confront the brutal facts uh, he taught us how to get complexity out of the business and make things simple to simple to use. He was he was a big factor in um, at a key juncture in our company. And then the last couple of years, the last guy I would mention um, that we used was uh, Patrick Lencioni. I think you probably another author, consultant type that's out here in California. He I used to, he was my personal coach, Colby, and then he also steered us every quarter with the entire leadership team. And I think if you talk to any executives at Equinix today that were with me during the time I was there, he made us a much more cohesive team. We made decisions better, we communicated better, we got healthier as an organization at the top. He taught us how to be healthy. He was all about organizational health trumps everything else. You can have great people and great this and great that. If you don't have cohesion at the top of the company, you're gonna, you're, you're not gonna be successful. So he was, uh, he was a big positive for us uh, during a critical time towards, towards the end of my, my time at Equinix.
1: And I want to talk more about Equinix. And actually, at some of the analyst days that Equinix has done in the past, you brought some of these people yes. to the actual analyst day to, to speak in front of investors, which is actually interesting based on what you just yeah. said in terms of the impact that those individuals have had on that company uh, and kind yes. of doing some of that with, with investors. Um, but just going back to, to, to your own experiences, just wanted to ask a few more questions on that. Now that you're on the other side, obviously had success. Do you have uh, key tells or things you look for or listen for when you're interviewing someone uh, that help you determine pretty quickly if that's a person that would be the right or wrong fit for what you're interviewing them for?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, well, now, Colby's. you know, I'm in the mode with our team here of, of uh, you know, finding young companies with young, young executive teams uh, that need capital to scale. We're mid-market focused at GI things i look for uh, with a c level executive is do they have a command of the business do they have financial business market organizational customer acumen and there's a lot of questions you can ask to probe that i think it's important to walk away if you have confidence in a in a management team if you're going to invest in them that the ceo for sure has a command of the business i like to poke at are they thoughtful about strategy you know the world is changing so much that you know are they thinking about what's new what's next are they thinking big enough about marketing, customer sensing? I always want to find someone that's, that's got hard-nosed execution. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be around really good people. You know, them now they're, many of them are running Equinix today. They're really good at just driving bookings and churn and top-line, bottom-line and returns and margins. And, you know, those, those critical success factors, you have to be really tough, and hard-nosed about in terms of running the business. That's a, that's a critical dimension.
1: What's, what, mean, think the of the, of the, what do you mean, hard-nosed?
0: Well, just uh, being able to unpack that stuff, being able to, to stress test those things on a regular basis. You got to have a, when I say have a command of the business, you better know what bookings are going to look like every quarter. You better, and if you start to slide one way or another, you better be able to stress test it and make an adjustment. I, I find in these cable, fiber, data center, tower businesses, the, 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 the levers are the same. It's bookings. It's installs. It's churn. You know these better than most people. It's EBITDA. It's revenue. It's pricing. It's returns and margins. Those levers you have to have your hands on top of every week, every month, every quarter, and you know the cadence that you put around that stuff is super important. So if a company doesn't have good, I call them operating mechanisms, that that's something that you wanna that you want to really understand. And then I think the final thing that I think about is I think it I think there's got to be a, a A flavor of charisma and inspiration with leaders and it has to be all the way down to the front lines and that's something that you can learn but i think you have to bring a super amount of energy if you're a leader that people because people people will react to how the top leader is behaving you know the culture of a company in my view is the behavior of the leaders so if the leaders are behaving with high energy and inspiration guess what the culture of that company is going to be it's going to be it's going to be super inspirational and then the last, I guess the last thing I would think about that I always look for is, can the executive that's leading that business or the business unit or the function, can they stand up in front of you and tell you with clarity and prioritization the top three to five things that are driving that business? Can they prioritize those things and say, here's where we got to focus. Here's where I need your investment. That's super important to me to, for people to have clarity and prioritization about strategic objectives.
1: That's really helpful. You talked about a little bit uh, of this already, but before becoming CEO of Equinix uh, in April of 2007, uh, you were the SVP of the professional services segment of HP, and before that, all the variety of professional service, services management and sales leadership positions at Lucent and, and EDS, as you mentioned. Uh, did you know when you came out of the Army, you wanted to be in technology, or does it go back to that EDS interview and you figured, why not?
0: Well, yeah, good question. You know, I, my last assignment, as I mentioned in Kobe, I was stationed in Honolulu, which is, a lot of people don't know, the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific for all forces in the Pacific is, is in Honolulu. So there's a ton of military there, you know, with Pearl Harbor and Hickam Air Force Base and the big Army deployment. So I actually, tech found me. I was, a, I was a captain getting ready to be promoted to major. I had made the decision I wanted to get out and go into the business world. And the uh, EDS was recruiting former academy grads all over the world. And so because I was an academy grad, I got contacted. I didn't know anything about EDS. I, you know, I'd heard of Ross Perot in and, and those days. And uh, one thing led to another. And um, you I know, went there to join a, which today would never happen, an annual, a full year sales development program. So I, when I went to EDS, I moved to Dallas. They put me into a sales development program and taught me how to sell for an entire year. So the investment was enormous. We went to an Outward Bound and climbed mountains in Colorado. We went to, we just did incredible things. And at the end of that year, you know, they kind of hand you a bag and say, here you go, here's your quota. And they moved me to New Jersey to go, call, to go join the national account team with AT&T, which is right after divestiture. So I, I was calling on executives at AT&T every day. And so I learned how to sell every day. And that's how I started my career at EDS.
1: It's really interesting about, you talk about the importance of, of training. I was talking to a friend yesterday who's a, who's a doctor. We we're having this conversation about how to be a doctor, you always have to go to uh, undergrad and then medical school. And then you actually have to go into right. the field for many years and, and, and practice along some, alongside somebody who actually has done that before. Uh, we we're actually yeah. comparing it to being a police officer and how they only yeah. give you six months of training and then they expect you to go out there and, and, and know exactly what to do. And that obviously as you could appreciate turned into this really interesting debate around yeah. happening in today's world to have a full year of, of training to be the best salesperson you can be. I mean, that's yeah. I feel like unheard of today.
0: Well, companies don't do that today. You just can't afford that. Yeah. And I, you know, and I was lucky in those days because they could take a, you know, a, a, a Naval grad or an Air Force, you know, they all the people I went to the first program, but there was 13 of us, I think 10 of us were Academy grads, you know, so pretty hard charging, you know, former captains that were, you know, go take the hill. And so Perot's whole mentality was we can, these are, these are hard charging discipline executives. Let's go teach them how to sell. And the art of selling was, you know, it was wonderful. And then, you know, my, I was fortunate as many, people have been in their careers you know I sold and I sales managed and then they asked me did I want to move to Singapore to go run a business so after being a successful sales leader I moved to Singapore with my family and managed a P&L and managed uh, all of Southeast Asia for EDS and then we uh, a year 18 months into that they asked me if I wanted to move to New Zealand and we did and I ran a bigger business in New Zealand I was the only American there there was Thousand Kiwis and and me and I brought a few other EDSers over but we you know They they it was running I went from running a hundred fifty million dollar business to a four hundred million dollar business And then I managed all of Asia and ho- I went to Hong Kong So I spent seven years in Asia for EDS uh, With my family and, and became super familiar with Asia um, So, you know, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity now not a lot of people would leave their family or their friends and move from Dallas to Singapore and from Singapore to, to New Zealand New Zealand was wonderful, as most people, the listeners would know, And Hong Kong was a fantastic experience. But I, I took those opportunities, which definitely helped me and afforded me the opportunity to become broader and deeper as a leader.
1: How did you get brought into the process for the CEO spot at Equinix? And how much did you really know about the company at that time? I
0: didn't know anything about it, uh, to be honest with you, because I was running the outsourcing business and the technology services business and all the consulting business for HP at the time. So I was working for Mark Hurst, as, as I mentioned to you. I and mean, it was a $16 billion P&L global. It was, it was 50,000 people. It was an enormous organization. It came to me via a search firm. And um, I, I met the search firm. And then I, I met uh, Peter Camp. And as you probably remember, and some of the listeners remember, Peter was the chairman and CEO at the time. And he was brought in to take it public. Um, was going through a tough personal situation with his wife at the time. She was unhealthy. And eventually, I think most of the market knows she passed away. But at the time, he needed to step away from the day to day. So they were searching for a CEO. He was going to remain uh, on the board and as a, as a critical member. Kept
1: an office. And I,
0: and I re- what's that? He kept an office. On yeah. yeah. A, a tremendous guy, as, as, as this industry knows. Um, and I, it, it's, it's some interesting stories. So I met, I met the executive team. I, met, uh, I studied the business model. Actually, at the time, you know, I was running a big business for Mark, but, but I, I had such a good relationship with Mark. I actually presented the, the opportunity to him and he helped me look at it. So he was so supportive at the time to say, I think you're going to have the opportunity to be a CEO someday. This, and he studied the model with me and said, this is an incredible business model. And I knew it was a good team. And I knew that it was, it was, um, they were market differentiated. You know, I knew the culture was great. And they were just looking for someone to come in who had big scale, who had lived around the world that could take Equinix to the next level. And Peter and I hit it off, and I, get, I don't know how many people they talked to, Colby, but I was fortunate enough to be selected. I took the job, as you know, and probably the best decision ever made in my life.
1: When you joined Equinix, its market cap was just under $3 billion, uh, whereas today it's just under $70 billion. Um, <laughs> did you ever think it would become such a big company?
0: No, at the time, I don't think anybody did. No one knew how to think that big. And, you know, uh, 2007, I think, is when I joined. You know, when I joined, it was 400 million in revenue. And I guess the, the, the market cap was in the 3B range. It was mostly North America, but we made some very big decisions. We had some big pivotal moments along the way uh, that were key hires were geographic expansion, go-to-market decisions, products, et cetera, that helped us, um, that helped us scale the company. And I knew the assignment there was to go scale the company and bring in new executives, combining with the current executives that are still there. And there's probably six, seven, eight things, Colby, that I, when I look back that, that, put, that, that were underpinning, going from three billion market cap to what it is today, 70. And from the beginning, um, and it was, kind of, it was kind of pounded into me from the board and from Peter and the team, was we never wandered very far from the, the founding idea that they built the brand promise on, which was interconnection in ecosystems, right? You know that as well as anybody. Scale and reach was uh, what it mattered. So we, we had an executive that you remember named Jarrett Appleby that I brought in at a certain point who was the head of marketing. And okay. he left and went on to do. Yeah, went on to do other things. But he he educated me on the idea of a platform. He said, we need to turn this thing into platform equinix, And I give him credit for pushing that agenda because it underpins what happened over a decade, which was about 21 acquisitions. And we probably spent 25 billion U.S. dollars in organic and inorganic growth over the time that I was there and put us on the map. We, we, we moved this thing from a North American business to five continents. I think it was like 28 countries and maybe 52 metropolitan areas and a couple hundred data centers by the time I left. I know it's bigger now. Um, and that mattered. Scale and reach mattered in this business market leadership decisions mattered. We decided to be number one or number two in every market that we served. That was a major decision. And so that drove acquisition strategy. If we were, if we were number three or number four, we just said, we can't play in that market. So that, that drove major differentiation. We were, we were just really focused on differentiation, which I think most great companies do. And, and the differentiation there was around ecosystems, global reach and scale, and service excellence with the product of the, of the data center. The, the, the Equinix data center looked different than every data center did on the planet, as you know. There were more bells and whistles there. And that's all evolved now, as you know. Lots of companies don't need all that. We got very clear and, and very prioritized on our strategic initiatives. We knew what we needed to do this year to press our advantage. We knew, and we had a group of people that were studying the market to see what the next wave was. We knew when cloud was gonna come. We knew when, when the, the edge was starting to unfold. So we had we had a group of people. That's all they did. They weren't sellers. They weren't operators. They were market sensing and customer sensing people. And they went out and talked to the most prolific companies in the world and said, where is where is this going? And we used to triangulate that and make decisions. And that was critical. Probably, though, you know, there's two or three other things. I think we're probably one of the best capital allocators during that tenure. I think they still are now we never went dark in a market. So we had, we had a mantra inside that said, if there's demand in a market, we never want to go dark in that market. So the capital planning with the capacity planning was super aligned. And you know, I'd I'd say at the end of the day, it was a very high powered sales growth culture. Culture mattered here. And I, as you know, I was a big proponent of the sales and growth engine at the company. And so all those things mattered. Now, Charles and that team are taking that thing to the next level way beyond where anybody I think would have envisioned, certainly where where we did. And, you know during the decade i was there
1: yeah i when i think about it i've been covering it since i don't know 2004 or 5 2005 maybe you know there's two things that kind of stick out to me one was the company had a, what i refer to as the first mover advantage and if yeah. it didn't have a first mover advantage it made really strategic acquisitions uh before other people were even thinking of them when you think of ix europe for example in europe Uh, or you think about what you guys did uh, in Asia. Now, even what they're doing in in other markets uh, to just continue to press that advantage and and, and each acquisition kind of gets the benefit of the acquisitions before it. Um, But the other thing I think that isn't as fully appreciated is actually the technological know-how. A lot of the people that came out of, uh, that are in Equinix now and have been in Equinix are actually out of the telecom industry. Yeah, that's right. Um, And really understood, the interconnect component of that, uh, and, and the sophistication of that platform and product set. And and I think that that still resides as part of the culture now inside the company. And if you think about that versus a lot of other data centers, particularly today, they're much more of this real estate mindset, which for a lot yes. of businesses I'm sure will be enough, but to really you know, have Equinix be as successful as it was over the years that it's been successful, I, I think that that technological know-how, they always seem first, and you'd see some of the other data center companies kind of come behind them six months or two years later with similar products, almost back yeah. when Equinix has done.
0: I would guess their future, Colby, and you're more connected than I am these days after being out of there a couple of years now, you know, because you talk to the executive team is, you know, their future growth, they'll do M&A in new markets. I'm sure they'll, you know, they'll put things like they just did in India. They'll continue to do that like, like the other big players will. But I, I think you'll see them doing more product type uh, expansions around what's the next wave of interconnection and the evolving edge and what what the next ecosystem is going to look like. So they're very tied in with the digital agenda. So, you know, the the whole world is digitizing and they're very, very connected into understanding where that's going and the emerging services coming out of there. So it won't surprise me if they do more technology, product oriented acquisitions going forward to just completely, you know, have have a full suite of services. I think you'll see digital doing similar things too. The two big global players, they're just, they're just the amount of acquisitions and scale and reach they've built is is super tough to to go try to copy today. It's just there's there's a, there's a multi year advantage, billions of dollars gone into it, and and systems and processes underneath it that make it all work globally.
1: Yeah, and I guess that brings me to my next question, question, which is when I look at some of the things that Equinix is doing, such as the um, HSPJV's and I look at the acquisitions that Digital has done, such as more recently Interaction. Um, You know, both companies are positioning themselves to be uh, what I refer to as conglomerates of sorts within the data center world, so they can support any type of demand, um, whether it's you know a a cabinet or it's it's a full uh, leased facility. Do you think that there's room for a third or a fourth global player and Anybody you'd highlight uh, who you think has the makings to be that?
0: Oh, that's a big question, Colby. You know, I do, as I, as I just alluded to, I do think, unfortunately, for others, it's going to be pretty tough to ever go build the level of scale that digital and aquatics have built. If they have such a big head start with the capital and the acquisitions and the systems and processes. I do think there's room for regional players and combinations to get bigger, particularly in Asia. As you probably know, I'm on the next DC board down in Australia. And, you know, that's a very solid company that could could easily extend its its reach out beyond Australia, you know, as Eric Trunk is doing now. So I, I think there's, there's possible, you know, there's more opportunity in Asia than there is. And there's been enough consolidation in Europe and certainly North America is pretty consolidated, but I do think it would be tough to put together a combination today to ever catch what's done with those two players. Now, the world doesn't need global service providers everywhere. Regional providers do a great job, and then small players are doing a great job around the edges. And even if you look at, you know, the big cloud providers and the big enterprises today, they, you know, they use multiple data center providers. They use multiple fiber, you know, they, so they, they're very diversified. So I think there's room for lots of companies to do well. The, the advantage they have is, is, are these cross-border deals. And so when you're looking at a local company like in Australia or in China or in Hong Kong, they don't get inbound deals coming. in. When you're a global platform like digital and, and Equinix, American sales force can, can find a customer that wants to buy capacity in Europe, or European sales force can find, can find a demand that wants to go to Asia. So the amount of cross-border deal flow that happens for those two big companies just gives them an enormous advantage to service these global demands. And it's, and it's why they grow faster. They just have more. Now, not everybody needs global footprint, but when I left Equinix, I think 60% of their customers were in all three regions with them. Think about that. 60% of the customer base, I think the customers were around, I don't know, eight, 9,000. 70% of the customers were with them in multiple regions. And I think it was as high two years ago as 85% of those customers were in multiple metros. So they were focused on requirements that, were, that needed consistency around the world. And I think digital has, has done a great job doing that too. Yeah. But it's hard to go replicate that.
1: It is very hard to replicate that. I mean, even Cyrus One is an example who's now in Europe. will tell yes. you that where they're being successful is just taking companies from the U.S. and, and transplanting them uh, yeah. into their European uh, facilities. But when you ask them about their ability to actually start to build a relationship with the European enterprises, yeah. very hard. It's very tough. hard not to... Not, well,
0: Well, we've seen Vantage and Edge Connects make the move to Europe and do pretty, you know, quite well. So there's definitely opportunities to do this, but it is, it's a tough road. It's a tough road to hoe.
1: There's no question Um, about it. When you left Equinix, did you know your next move was going to be in private equity?
0: No, but I, 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 I educated myself after I left and I talked to a bunch of, a bunch of businesses. I, I knew I was going to do some board work, Colby, and then when I got educated about the amount of capital inside these big infrastructure players, which I was, I knew they were there because our last two acquisitions at, at Equinix down in Australia and the Infomart, the competition were these enormous infrastructure funds that I had never really heard of and that I've become very familiar with now because I'm, you know, I'm in that space. So I did talk to a bunch of them, and I was just absolutely flabbergasted at the amount of capital, that, the private capital that was being aimed at these infrastructure segments, which included data centers and data transport and wireless. And I, I, it was a whole part of the world having been public my whole life that I just had no deep understanding of, and I was just, I was blown away at the amount of capital. So I knew I could go help one of them. I talked to probably a dozen of them and decided to go with, with GI Partners because they had a, such a deep history. I knew the founder, I knew a handful of the managing directors, and it's been a great run with them. They're a pretty, well as you know, very sophisticated North America. Not in Asia, they, they've been in Europe a little bit, but very deep sector-focused North American history, and that was, um, that was important to me to go to somebody who had domain knowledge.
1: GI just launched its maiden infrastructure fund that you and, and Mark Pributok are co-leading. Considering GI has been in the data center space for many years, having helped create digital realty, how does this fund differ from GI funds in the past?
0: Yeah, good question. So GI Partners has been around for two decades, as you as you mentioned, Colby, and um, they've been in the private equity business since 2001. They've probably invested over $2 billion in 9 or 10 infrastructure-related companies uh, over those two decades. You mentioned one of them. A lot of, a lot of the listeners probably do not remember that, that, that GI founded digital realty. They, they, they stood up Digital Realty, and everybody knows that success story. They also owned Telex along the way. They owned a company called The Planet, which merged with a company called SoftLayer. We all remember SoftLayer. They ultimately, uh, GI sold it to IBM, became the fourth largest platform at that time. They were in the, the broadband business. They own Flexential today, as you know. We've, we've extended that now and are buying more broadband businesses. So they've, they've, they've invested a couple of billion into the infrastructure over those two decades. They also had a real estate arm, Colby, which some of the listeners may not know since 2012. And so they've invested over, GI's invested over a billion dollars into, into facilities. So not just, not just infrastructure facilities, but all kinds of facilities. And they actually own one Wilshire. So they own one of the most interconnected facilities in North America. They probably we we probably own 25, 26 data centers where we own the building, but it's not an operating company. So, so the private equity has evolved now into software and services and healthcare. And the reason that Mark and I were asked to come in and help them was they wanted to extend the heritage and the history of of being in hard asset uh, infrastructure. And as you know, that whole industry re- re-rated and we needed a new source of capital. So we were asked to build this new strategy, go out and raise the capital, which we did, and go invest and extend the two decades of history of, you know, they probably have 8 billion of total enterprise value of investments that they've made over the two decades, and extend that that history and keep doing it. And so, so we're really focused it's, on-
1: It's really the, the infrastructure fund is less a, a pivot in strategy or mindset or, you know, what. Uh, GI has been founded upon more a reflection of just the evolution of the industry around right. you and right. the valuations and what's required then to be competitive in bake-offs and so forth and, and needing, you know, more longer dated capital and so forth. Right. Yeah. Right. And as you know, the
0: reason these infrastructure funds all got stood up uh, and the private equity uh, investors kind of stepped away from these infrastructure companies is because there was so much capital, new sources of capital that were, very targeted, you know, in these infrastructure sectors. So we're North America focused, very sector focused, and we have a long history here. So why North America?
1: uh, I mean, when I think of the better growth opportunities, it feels like they're actually outside of North America. And if I think about those who've been paying attention to this space the longest, they probably have a pretty good understanding of who all the players are at this point in North America. The the new frontier, if you will, is kind of going into these other areas. So why play in the area that's probably, you know, most understood at this point and to some degree, maybe most mature?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, a little bit of it is the heritage of the firm. It's been in the North America where Donnelly, for two decades, as I said. There's also a huge spend that's still going into the U.S. over the next five years across data centers, data transport, wireless, IOT, et cetera, somewhere in the four to $500 billion over the next five years. So there's enough investment going into North America, Colby, it's, we're very sector focused, so we're not generalist focused, so we, we, we have an advantage almost every deal we look at. We either have a relationship or we have an angle, we have some advantage, but there's plenty of deal activity. Yes, it is. It's more mature than Asia or Europe. The first fund, a little bit of his first fund dynamics too, 20% of this first fund is, is non-North America carved out. So we can do deals and we can partner for deals outside of North America. I think fund two, you'll see us broaden out beyond North America. A little bit of it's fun, one nature, a little bit of it's the heritage of GI. Uh, but trust me, there's plenty of opportunity in North America in these mid, we're, remember, we're mid-market focused. So we're looking at these regional players, broadband players, and COVID's done nothing but accelerate that opportunity.
1: Well, I guess to that point, does the current macro backdrop, and it's not just COVID-19, it's, it's the re- recession, it's the election, it's you know, China-U.S. relations, do, do some of those things give you concern about where or when to be deploying capital?
0: Not really, probably the opposite. You know, I think for the last decade and I think for the next decade, people that are investing in this industry realize that we're, we're playing at the intersection of some of the greatest technology trends in our lifetime. And I don't see it changing anytime soon. So, you know, as computing power continues to digitize nearly everything around us, and we continue to live in a mobile cloud enabled world that'll go to the next wave. Uh, 5G is going to continue to transform the communications space. Artificial intelligence is is the race is on. Everything's being served up as a service today, right? I think Amazon taught the world the easy button and I think you're going to see you're going to see infrastructure companies trying to continue to, you know, copy that formula. And and everything's everything's moving to software. So I I think the opportunities with the evolving edge and this internet of things concept, I think it's early, but I think you're going to see, you're going to see 5g push use cases out that are going to fall into these infrastructure essential services categories. And I think you're going to see this, this concept of more compute storage networking getting pushed further out. Is that where you're most
1: excited then? Is it, is it wireless and in the edge? I mean, when you think about towers and data centers and, and fiber, and you think about, um, you know fiber to the home and then you think about long haul fiber and then you think about edge computing and you think about yes you know, that, like what 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 is of, of those varieties? I mean where are you most excited or find most interesting right now?
0: Well a lot of those are disruptive technologies, Colby as you well know, and they're becoming very investable opportunities rather than a threat to the existing assets. So we're paying attention to all of them. We're 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 looking at these regional players that have the have the capability, the customer base, the the knowledge of how to go build a regional small platform in these tier two, tier three, tier four markets. So the same thing that's happened in the tier one markets around the world. The thesis is that it's going to spread further out to the tier two, three, four markets and the same requests and requirements for a local hospital or a local enterprise or a local school is going to be in those smaller markets. So yes, we're very interested in that. Broadband, I can tell you in rural America, is as important to people in those communities as food, shelter, and water. So you could talk to a young leader at a company today and they try to prioritize those things. I'm not sure they put food, shelter, and water above broadband. So the world is changing at a rapid pace and there's so much investment going into these communities to enable them. Wireless infrastructure is is growing at an incredible rate. Small cell deployment, uh, CBRS, and spectrum is is unfolding today. So we, we keep an eye on the leading edge stuff, Colby. And then we, you know, we have to invest in very, they have to be cash flowing businesses. They need capital for the next wave of growth. Um, and, you know, we, we have a whole bunch of qualification things we need to do to go make sure it's, it's the right asset. I mean, there's going to be winners and losers like there has been in every decade. So for us, we're going to do in our first fund, which is 1.8 billion, we're going to do probably seven to 10 deals. And there'll be, there'll be equity checks in the size of 100 to four or 500 and at the upper end, our, our LPs will co-invest with us. So we could so 1.8 billion, we'll, we'll deploy somewhere north of 3 billion uh, in total total capital deployed to go find these mid-market companies across all these sectors that are going to be winners in the next generation.
1: We've now entered the lightning round. And what I mean by that is I'm going to ask you three or four questions asking you to keep your responses to less than 30 seconds. But uh, we'll, we'll keep the answers to, to less than 30 seconds for each one, and I will not ask any follow-up questions. We'll just move right on to the next one. So um, the first one is, will it make sense for a large data center and a large tower company to ever merge?
0: Wow, that's a big question. I guess I guess if there's industrial logic, anything could happen. The customer bases today, to my knowledge, are very different, Colby. And so I think that's, that's, that's probably a tough... Put today but if you know if those two business models transition from the big hub to the edge as we've just been talking about and these edge pop data centers might live we might see macro you know micro data centers at cell towers maybe maybe that makes sense to have a combination
1: there what's the best infrastructure business model
0: if you're talking between the big sectors like data centers towers fiber um, or if you're just talking about how we look at it as an investor now it would be yeah, so however you want value added space I would tell you is is was which is most exciting to us' it's businesses that have a great mix of customers have a good diversity of um, of advantage because of location uh, they're providing essential services they're scaling like crazy they have a good management team they have predictable cash flow we like that investment to go put money to work to help them edge out and, and scale the business. And because if you can, if you can underwrite something to a return that meets your, meet your investors threshold, but there's five or six levers you can pull that can, can exceed that return, then it's a very attractive value add opportunity. And that's what we're mostly focused on.
1: Will Equinix ever buy an edge data center company?
0: <laughs> probably, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that to now, but my my opinion on that will be: if interconnection continues to uh, enable edge workloads, you might see them um, push into uh, extending out of those big tier one markets into into uh, markets that are that are further out. But you know, today, even in North America, when I left, they could service up to eighty percent of the requirements in North America down to ten milliseconds. So. They've been, you know, they have so much capacity in so many different places. But if latency and high availability and and data sovereignty and security requirements start to evolve and it pushes them to go further out to the edge, it's possible.
1: Well, my last one: uh, Will fixed wireless ever equate for more than 10% of market share of U.S. in-home broadband?
0: Wow! Now you're really stretching my. My my knowledge. You're, um, you're a private I expert. Think,
1: you know everything these days, so it's it's not data centers. I, I,
0: <laughs> I think fixed wireless is a low cost a low cost alternative, mostly for low volume users today. So I, I, I think it would be tough for to replace fixed line users with with to take it over ten percent. But it's you know it's unlikely, I would think, Kobe. But it, it's possible. Um, but to replace fixed line high speed broadband that already exists in these markets is is a tough putt to overcome. So it's possible to go over 10%, but I think I think today fixed wireless is, a, is truly a low cost alternative to low volume users. And I don't know if it's gonna make that shift. It's possible, but that's a, big, that's a big jump to go over 10%, I would think.
1: Fair enough. Uh, Steve, with that, we are out of time. Thank you so much for being our inaugural leaders, legends, luminaries, and visionaries guest speaker. Uh, the next one just for everybody knows is Tom Lighton the CEO and co-founder of Akamai, which we'll be doing just after third quarter earnings. Um, But Steve, so much, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your time.
0: I appreciate the, the dialogue.
1: Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next
0: episode of Cowan Insights.